Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Nadia Abu El-Hajj about the history of post-traumatic stress disorder. Specifically, what can be learned about psychiatry, American imperialism and anti-war politics by tracking PTSD's shifting status in medical discourse throughout the 20th and 21st century. Nadia Abu El-Hajj is Anne Whitney Olin Professor in the Departments of Anthropology at Barnard College and Columbia University, and a recipient of numerous awards, including the MacArthur Fellowship. She is the author of Combat Trauma, Imaginaries of War and Citizenship in Post-9-11 America, which was published with Verso Books in the summer of 2022. In this conversation, I asked Nadia about the emergence of PTSD as a diagnostic framework in the work being done between veterans and radical psychiatrists in the wake of the Vietnam War. I also asked her about the significant role this work played in the anti-war movement before going on to explore the depoliticization and co-option of this work throughout the 80s and 90s, which culminated in a widely accepted model of PTSD devoid of political content, especially lacking in the anti-war politics inherent to its earlier iterations. If you'd like to support Red Medicine, you can do so in a number of ways. Firstly, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash redmedicine and sign up for a £1 a month donation to keep the podcast going. Once we reach 100 supporters, I'll be arranging a giveaway to say thank you to all of those people. But if you'd still like to support the podcast but can't afford to do that, you could do so by posting about the podcast on social media or giving it a five-star review on your platform of choice. Finally, I'd just like to say this episode includes extended discussion of war crimes, sexual violence and incest. So if you'd like to avoid discussion of those topics, please feel free to skip this one. Okay, so I thought before we get into some of the more specific questions about the historical development of post-Vietnam syndrome, PTSD, moral injury, I thought I would start by asking you about a little bit just about the nature of diagnostic categories like PTSD. And I suppose the question to start would be, I want to ask you, what's at stake for you in analysing PTSD as a historically or socially produced category, as opposed to a sort of natural thing in the world that some people might relate to these categories as? So it probably the best way to start in answering that question is that is how I came to write the book. So what really struck me starting with, so this is a long time before I started the book, but starting with the sur- particularly the surge in Iraq, first surge in Iraq of the U S military in 2004, I think it was maybe 2003. 
what became very evident, what was happening in the U.S. and in the coverage in the press is that there was increasing coverage of the potential trauma, of the traumatization of U.S. soldiers. And I use soldiers very widely. I mean, I know there are different branches of the military, but in a colloquial sense. And the sense of, of, of what they were being traumatized by, what trauma was, was about themselves being injured, watching their buddies die. So it became sort of incorporated into this whole vision of PTSD as tethered to fear of death or exposure to the horror of death, which really is an understanding of PTSD as a condition of victimhood. I knew the history of the literature on psychiatry and PTSD as a condition of victimhood. And it really struck me at that time that so much of the conversation in the U.S. public domain about these wars that were being fought so very far away was less about what was going on on the ground and certainly very little, if anything, particularly in that early period, about what was happening to Iraqi or Afghan civilians. Again, remember the military insisted on embedding journalists. So access for American journalists was also very limited and the American press doesn't tend to talk to anybody else. So what was very striking was there was a kind of understanding of the war and of the kinds of suffering that were being produced and of who was suffering that wasn't being said explicitly, but was certainly circulating through this increasing coverage of soldiers coming back, right, suffering PTSD. So in other words, it was never, and the the circulation of discourses of trauma are never entirely clinical, right? They have all sorts of impacts on how one thinks about conflict and victimhood and violence. We know that vis-a-vis Holocaust survivors, vis-a-vis survivors of rape and incest, et cetera. And so my starting point was that and trying to understand especially since I knew a little bit about the history of PTSD and the fact that the origin of the diagnostic category, PTSD, obviously not theories of trauma, but in the U.S. was very much born of the American war in Vietnam and born of a radical politics. So it made me then think, so what are at stakes in different conceptions of trauma, even within the medical, even within the medical field, will mediate this conversation about war in different ways. And so really, the project was to think about these wars and how they appear on the American home front. But so much of how they were appearing was increasingly through this narrative of the traumatized soldier and veteran. That's how I got there. And then I, it was very clear to me that to understand the implications of that conversation in a kind of political sense today, an ethical sense, I had to go back and look at the moment in which PTSD really appears in not just in the American, official American psychiatric diagnostic manual, but also in public conversations in the U.S. And that is really the beginning of the 19th. It begins in the 70s with the the sort of last years of the the American war in Vietnam. Yeah. So what is the significance of the war in Vietnam, because America has been involved in numerous wars throughout the 20th century, Korean War, there's of course the Second World War that involved. What is it about what's happening during Vietnam that is significant with regards to understandings of trauma in relation to combat? 
Well, what becomes significant is, of course, it's not the first. We have shell shock in World War One. We have combat fatigue in World War Two. There were some conversations during the American War in Korea. But what is very significant, I, I think, is two things. Obviously, the war in Vietnam was the first American war, at least that I can think of, um, in which there was massive and active opposition to the war that grew while the war was ongoing, including within the ranks of American, the American military. So there's a critical perspective that emerges around this concept of, of the trauma of soldiers that gets taken up as part of a political, I mean, so it gets taken up as part of a political movement. It also happens at a moment when the American Psychiatric Association anyway is revising its diagnostic and statistical manual, which begins in the 70s. So you have all these things converging at the same time. And you do have feminist movements beginning to talk about rape. You have civil rights movements. There's all this deep politicization going on in U.S. society. And as part, what emerges out of this kind of political critique of Vietnam that grows, particularly in the late 60s into the early 70s is an increasing recognition that many, right? So people were drafted, they did one year tours, they came back. Most people left the military after a year, that many of the veterans who were now back on US soil, there was a very high rate of reports of people suffering from trauma, in spite of the fact that the military had redesigned tours of duty so that they were shorter and had treated people, quote unquote, at the front, they'd taken all the lessons they thought they'd learned from the Second World War and claimed that, oh, we're seeing very little trauma in Vietnam. This is working. And then people back in the U.S., whether in the Veterans Administration, hospitals, or in larger contexts, were seeing a lot more trauma. So, but basically, the way in which this conversation, as well, both public and medical, gains traction is through activists who were anti-war activists, veterans who became anti-war activists, and they started this, you know, Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Again, a very unusual moment where such a, you know, I mean, it wasn't the majority of veterans, but it was a very significant political movement while the war was ongoing. And they were joined by psychiatrists who, again, this was a much more radical political moment anyway, who who were critical of U.S. imperial policy, U.S. race policy at home, et cetera, who joined them um, in rap groups that they had designed to discuss their experiences in Vietnam on the battlefields. And the reason the VVAW organized rap groups was precisely that there was so much anger against and suspicion of the, the, the federal government, not just the military, but the Veterans Association, the Veterans Administration that was tied into it, right, that they wouldn't go to the VA for treatment, right? So there was a rejection of the federal government, a total distrust. In general, this is the period where there's a rejection of hierarchy, right? So you had rap groups that were born of feminist movements and consciousness raising groups. And these were a similar project, except they brought in some radical psychiatrists to work with them because quite clearly people were suffering from a very intense sort of traumatic response. And then what's specifically significant in that period is it's again, it's not the first time that anybody thought about the effects of killing, that killing could be traumatizing. Um, one has those conversations in earlier wars, but it is the first sustained conversation that really what soldiers are traumatized by 
is having trans transgressed moral boundaries. And in the context of the war in Vietnam, where, you know, the level of atrocity was just extraordinarily high. I mean, people were talking about, you know, having participated in rapes and massacres and cutting off people's ears. And, you know, so that there was so much of an atrocity situation in this anti-guerrilla war that that really came to the fore. And then that articulation of what combat trauma is, which is essentially what was called post-Vietnam syndrome is what would be called combat trauma, was very particular because it was very clearly tethered to participating in, carrying out, or witnessing what were morally reprehensible acts and, and then suffering from that. So a sense of having been damaged by what one did, not by this idea of just being exposed to the exhaustion or, you know, the fear on the front line. And that is very particular. Again, not because it's the first time it's happened, but because it was the center of the conversation and it makes sense it was the center of the conversation given the character of that war. I mean, the U.S. military was also completely out of control. Its rules of um, engagement, I mean, there were free fire zones, people got officers were, you had to report body counts every day. There were all sorts of incentives, in fact, to kill, well, what Nick Turks called kill anything that moves, was built into the military policy, right? Yeah, I was going to, I was going to mention that, actually, the, the shift in military policy to measure success in Vietnam with not even square body miles count. gained, but it right. was just how many people can you kill? Um, right. I was actually reading another book earlier in the week and which referenced Malcolm X talking about Vietnam um, mm -hmm. and kind of saying it's the last war, the last ground war that America won. Do you, do you think there's something about the nature of the way in which America was defeated in Vietnam that posed a problem for soldiers in making sense of their role in the military? I mean, I know there was sort of unprecedented levels of war crime and kind of viciousness in, in what was committed. But do you think on a, a more, I guess, on the level of a kind of collective consciousness, that the fact that it was a, a traumatic loss also produced some of these questions? I think absolutely. And even before the war was formally lost, because there seems to have been a sense of, so I guess the question is what signified loss, right? So the body counts for the military was supposed to signify success. But really what was happening was you'd gain ground, you'd lose ground, you'd gain ground, you'd lose ground. It was never clear. It, well, first of all, it was never clear what a win would end up looking like, because as the war went on, it became quite clear the Viet Cong were not going to be beat, right? I mean, I think that that was more the experience of people on the ground, which honestly has happened in, in Afghanistan over 20 years of what is the exit strategy here if you keep gaining ground and losing ground? So I do think that it, it had this sense of what are we fighting for? That there was a profound experience of what are we fighting for that really increasingly took over the consciousness of many soldiers in Vietnam, even if people didn't have a kind of fully formed or didn't even develop later a political critique. There was a sense of futility, enormous amounts of carnage, in, you know, and even for, among Americans comparatively, right? 55,000 Americans dying was a big number for the U.S. military at the time, but with no sense of purpose, right? Because the military strategy itself wasn't clear, right? So I think absolutely. And then as people return to the U.S. and they turn against the war, so I think part of what happens in the move in the kind of anti-Vietnam movement among veterans is a sense of reestablishing meaning 
for what some meaning for what they did and what they now suffer was trying to change the course of the war. That engaging politically was the only way to reestablish some sense of purpose and control, because otherwise, what had you participated in for what end and how do you just walk away from it, right? As if, okay, now I go back to life, right? Um, so I think that, yes, that was huge. And then I think that becomes really key when we get to the kind of rise of the conservative movement. You can't let the war stand as a loss. You have to re-narrativize it. Yeah. And so just going back to previously what you're saying about rap groups, um, there's a story about Vietnam veterans returning from the war and being spat on that's been widely challenged and revealed to you know, be virtually untrue, but had a huge cultural resonance. And of course, contrary to that, veterans, as you have pointed out, were a huge part of the anti-war movement in the States with the famous image of veterans throwing their participation medals over the, the gates of the White House. Could you talk a little bit about the way in which the rap groups formed, the you know the meeting groups um, with veterans and anti-war activists, and I suppose how that coalescing of social forces produced the category of post-Vietnam syndrome? I mean, I should be honest that I don't, I didn't trace as specifically because it's not really a history of that war how the rap roots form or the VVAW. But what I do know is, so for example, Robert J. Lifton, who was one of the primary theorists as a psychiatrist of post-Vietnam syndrome, which is what is the initial iteration of what then becomes post-traumatic stress disorder as it's redefined, um, Haim, Shatan, and all these. So there were various psychiatrists who were very psychoanalytically bent or, bent or at least psychodynamically bent. In New York City, there were people working at the Boston VA was a big source in, in New Haven. They were already critical of the war and being known as such, they were then invited into these rap groups by, so the, initi the initial um, impetus comes from the veterans organization to participate in, and they were very clear they were not supposed to be the medical figure who had all the answers to participate in these rap groups and help in the conversation. So, but it was very much a give and take that they were going to learn stuff about the war from these veterans and in turn help them think about how to process the psychological or psychiatric suffering, right? And out of that conversation, I mean, Robert J. Lifton gives the most detailed account of this in his book, Home from the War, and then some other, many other things he wrote. I mean, he basically says that he simultaneously is participating in these rap groups starting about 69, 1969, 1970, and doing research on the massacre at Milai in order to understand the situation that would produce what he calls an atrocity producing situation. So he's trying to understand how, as he says, normal men would end up participating in such a massacre. And then at the same time, he's working with these veteran groups and listening to them and their own narration of their experiences and the guilt. I mean, a lot of this was about profound guilt and grief that could not be processed. He then also helped, developed, I mean, in tandem with other psychiatrists, but the parameters of what 
post-Vietnam syndrome was an expression of, right? What were its causes and what was it an expression of? So it really comes, it's kind of this project that the psychiatrists do more formally, although they're working with even some veterans. There are also various veterans who come back, train us to be psychologists, and right? Then join this conversation also not just as veterans, but as psychologists. Many of them trained as psychologists, not psychiatrists. So the whole articulation of post-Vietnam syndrome, again, in terms of what causes it, how to heal it, whatever that means, whether it can be fully healed, what the process would look like, and what people suffer as symptomatically, comes from both a kind of more straightforward research. For example, Hai Shatan also does research on the nature of basic training, right? So what's going on there to brutalize soldiers enough, Marines, it was Marines, enough, and to create enough of a sense of othering of the Vietnamese for the conditions of possibility, but then they're also learning really in real time from veterans that they're working with. And it is important, you know, when I talked to Robert J. Lifton, he said this, I mean, when I asked, it is important that they were working with anti-Vietnam veterans. I mean, their theory may have been different if they'd been working with people who came back and were still uh, much more supportive of the war in the American project. So it really shaped the theory itself because these were people who articulated feeling uh, incredible feelings of guilt for what they had done or what they had not stopped in front of them, right? And, and central to post-Vietnam syndrome and the understanding of their experiences through that as a framework, key for you and key for the research in the book is it contains a political critique. So you, you, can't, you can't really separate out their psychic experience from a political critique, which is really not what I suppose we're used to in our current moment with regards to diagnostic frameworks. Can you explain, I suppose, firstly, what what the critique was, how it was contained in the framework of the post-Vietnam syndrome? But then also, maybe from there, it'd be great to hear you kind of explain what it really means for a diagnostic framework to contain a political critique. Like what, what's actually happening there when those two things go together? So the critique is, um, is contained in the framework in a very particular way. So the starting point of one early story of this, which I tell in the book, is from Sarah Haley, who's a psychologist at the Boston VA, right? And this patient, first her first day of work at the Boston VA, late 60s, early 70s, I don't understand. I don't remember exactly. It must have been like, right, given the dating of my, my lie, is a patient who comes in and he's totally, I mean, he seems paranoid. He thinks he has these fantasies that members of his prior unit in Vietnam are going to come and kill him. And they're going to kill him because he knows about a massacre they carried out that he didn't participate in, in the sense of he was there, but he did not participate in actual rape and killing. And they, they know he's a witness to it. And she reports this at the end of the day, right? You have a kind of all the psychiatrists, psychologists getting together and talking about their patients. And she discusses this and everyone else in the room assumes this is a paranoid fantasy, that this never happened. And as time goes on, it turns out he was talking about the massacre at Milan. So that is a very common, I mean, not sort of, so Milai wasn't, was not 
was an exception in some sense. I mean, it wasn't the only one, but there was a whole continuum of violence. But a lot of what was being said to psychologists and psychiatrists in the VA and in the rap groups were these kinds of accounts of rape, of the murdering of civilians, the random murdering of civilians, right, of torture, and people expressing sort of, and you know, their hatred, the sort of rage and hatred they felt that enabled them to do that. And what they're processing, because this is, again, a context in which they turned against the war, is the imperial and racist assumptions built into that very project. And that it it wasn't that these were exceptions, that this kind of violence was American military policy. Those were the conversations. And those were the understandings the veterans were bringing back, right? So in other words, if you understand a soldier or a veteran to be traumatized by having killed, you can understand that killing as a kind of neutral, morally, politically neutral. This is what soldiers are trained to do. It doesn't mean it cannot be traumatized. Or you can understand this as as part of what was encouraged by American military policy, that the body counts, et cetera. That was the frame. So it wasn't just killing in some neutral sense. There was a kind of critical understanding of why did we do this? How did we do this? Why were we doing this? Why wasn't this just, oh, me as a crazy person deciding to do it? In other words, these were people who took responsibility, but also articulated it in a wider conversation about the war itself, right? And in that sense, the critique was built from the very beginning into the diagnostic. I mean, actually, you know, I pulled out a, a one very nice, I think, passage from Jonathan Shea about this at the Boston VA. I'm just going to um, go here. So so Jonathan Shea, who is a psychologist who worked at the Boston VA for decades, writes about that work in the following words. So what we do is political in the richest sense of the word. Our patients all took part in the exercise of state military power in and around Vietnam between 1965 and 1972. And their injuries traced to this participation and to how power was used in military institutions. The dominating element of power makes the cause of injury political. The forms of injury are in part political. And as you have seen now, the treatment of injury we provide is political. He goes on, for any mental health professional to work with American combat veterans injured in the service of their country and not to find incapacity for democratic participation, because one of the things he goes on to talk about is part of the healing is they go to D.C. and they go to the Vietnam Memorial, they encourage their patients to take part in, to vote, take part in politics. To find that incapacity to be a meaningful clinical issue strikes me as odd, to say the least. That's the framing of the injury, right? So this isn't an injury born of some random act. It's an injury born of having been drafted into or sent as a a volunteer in the military into Vietnam for a military project and of the US government it's built into it it's what causes the injury and it's what has to be discussed as part of the problem and part of it is and i think this is also really important these so again Jonathan Shea in the Boston VA is not specifically working with veterans against the war although many veterans turned against the war even if they were not active political participants but even for people who understood their trauma as guilt 
and grief for what they had done, in other words, perpetration, even those critics did understand themselves to have been victimized, but victimized by the U.S. government who sent them there in the first place, right? So the government plays a big role in this. I mean, that's that vision of the political project. Who sent me there? Why did they send me there? Right. And in that sense, it was also built in, even perhaps among people who were not, you know, actively politicized against the war. Yeah. Yeah. And so from there, as you point out, the the DSM-3 is being put together, which is I suppose, a handbook for psychiatrists, people in the psych field to sort of agree upon shared criteria for different quote-unquote disorders, conditions, whatnot. And the formalization of a lot of these rap groups and a lot of activism is that the condition gets recognized in the DSM-3. Can you talk about the significance of that and maybe also just a brief introduction of what the DSM is for people that might not be familiar? So let me start by just going back one tiny bit, which is obviously, as you know, having read the book, the vast majority of the book is not about the Vietnam era. There's there's a lot of very extensive histories of that transformation. And I revisited it to focus on a very narrow piece, which is why some of it's out of my, which is that the literature has read PTSD and DSM-3 as the moment of the depoliticization of trauma, of setting moral and ethical questions aside, and of turning trauma into victimhood. And I think there there are things that happen in DSM-3, which I will talk about. But I wanted to go back and, and just pause over that moment. So I'm not rewriting the whole history, but I'm saying it is worth pausing over that moment. It was a short period. It was, you know, a certain group of physicians and activists, but but they were the ones that pressured the DS, the American Psychiatric Association, to reintegrate some understanding of trauma, right, and combat trauma into the DSM. That it's important to pause over that moment because they give us a model where we don't have to choose between saying, oh, I don't care about veterans who are traumatized. That's their problem. I care. Right. It's not a choice between the political and recognizing the effects of combat trauma. And they gave us a way of understanding that. So what happened? So the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is the official diagnostic manual of the American Psychiatric Association. The first one, I think, is right after World War II, DSM-1. The DSM-2 comes out in the early era of the early years, sort of 60s while the U.S. is already in fighting in Vietnam, and they take out what had been put in post the Second World War, which is combat of fatigue. So the revisions for the DSM-3 start in the early 70s, and it, it becomes very clear they have no intention of putting back in a particular category for understanding combat trauma or any right PT, what becomes PTSD. They don't see it as a distinctive syndrome. So the push that starts among people like Lifton and Shatton and all these other people is to for is really to pressure the D, the APA to include something, to include a diagnostic category that could account for what these veterans are suffering. And one of the things that one sees in the reports 
from uh, psychologists, for example, in the VA where they have to come up with a diagnosis, right, is people are being diagnosed with schizophrenia or this and that because they don't have a diagnostic category. So they're actually being misdiagnosed in effect. So that becomes the pressure point. And in that sense, the activism of these radical psychiatrists and uh, veterans, I mean, and some of whom became psychologists, is a really key part of the story, which actually is well documented in the existing historical literature. What happens with the DSM-3 is they obviously becomes post-traumatic stress disorder rather than post-Vietnam syndrome. They definitely, it's it, it's more encompassing. Initially, people like Lifton and Chatton wanted a specific category for, for war trauma, but combat trauma. They didn't want to encompass, well, combat trauma and other things they considered really kind of preternatural, like such extreme experiences of violence. The PT, PTSD actually incorporates all co- different kinds of violence, rape, muggings, concentration camp victims, combat veterans. But it's so it really does neuter a lot of the political push of post-Vietnam syndrome. But what is included in it is the possibility of being traumatized by actions. I can't remember the exact word necessary for survival. So the question of necessity goes in, whereas they're saying not necessity, but it definitely in that includes the possibility that you can be traumatized by what you have done. It is not understood primarily as a response or solely as a response to being a victim, like the fear of dying. So that question of agency and guilt is built into the first DSM definition of post-traumatic stress disorder. Although, again, not in the kind of elaborate political and moral vocabulary, the post-Vietnam syndrome defined. And then as one goes forward through the 80s and 90s, that drops out and it becomes entirely a syndrome of people who have um, have a life-threatening or a perceived life-threatening experience and guilt drops out. I mean, guilt is about what one has done or what one fantasizes one has done. Guilt drops out as one of the partic- um, uh, possible manifestations. So DSM-3 is a kind of turning point and it's a turning point in the American psychiatric profession in a broader sense, which is they this is the the this is the moment of breaking the power of psychoan psychoanalysis in American psychiatry. They want to re right. They want it to be modeled on medical clear medical models. Part of the push is a funding push because the Congress doesn't want to you know fund stuff where you don't know what the category is. So it it moves away from cause into sim- symptom. And PTSD is, I think, the only one, it's definitely one of, and it might be the only diagnosis that still has, I can't remember exactly, a, a clear cause. You have to have been exposed to an event outside the range of normal human experience. But even with that, the focus then is what are the list of symptoms that you need to manifest in order to be diagnosed, right? Mm. Yeah. So I want to come back to that shift in psychiatric and the side field more generally. and. We'll we'll go on to um, the sort of eighties and nineties protest uh, process of depoliticization. But I suppose before we do that, I want to ask you maybe to reflect a bit on. So obviously, the psychic dimension to this critique of American militarism and imperialism is is valuable. It's hugely valuable for the anti-war left in the states um, and the left more generally. 
And I suppose in that sense, the depoliticization becomes a very expedient process for the the US state and the and the the war machine that is kind of functioning at that point. So before we move on to the kind of depoliticization, I mean, what what is happening around, you know, the state wants to, it's an imperialist state, it wants to have wars, it wants to extract value from other countries, it wants to colonize, it wants to do these things. So so why is it key for them to depoliticize these categorizations? Why is it why is why does psychiatry become a point of conflict between the anti-war movement and the imperialist state? So Again, I don't think the shift, just as an aside before I start, the shift doesn't happen because there's a kind of conspiracy of the federal government yeah, that yeah, decides yeah. they're going to, right. But look, in the period, so if you, one thinks about the moment where there's a much more public discussion in the U.S., it's starting in the newspapers. Again, there are all these also things of people coming back and they're drug addicts and they're committing crimes. I mean, I mean that's where a lot of the publicness comes, which doesn't mean that's how much most of this was expressed, but those conversations, right? And, and then the rise of this conversation about post- uh, Vietnam syndrome is sort of late 60s, early 70s, right? This is Nixon administration. There is no question, anybody in the administration at the time, that to talk about post-Vietnam syndrome is a critique of the war. They saw it as part of the anti-war movement. I mean, it was, although it probably wasn't for every psychologist who was treating traumatized veterans who saw them as traumatized, but they read combat trauma as a critique of the war. So you know, eventually Lifton and all of them got a hold of their FBI. They were all being spied on. I mean, the Vietnam veterans against the war were being spied on. We know that. They have endless stuff. But the psychiatrists had their own files. Their mail was being intercepted. It was absolutely understood as an anti-war position, right? So whether articulated as post-Vietnam syndrome or a more general conversation about Soldiers coming back damaged, which was basically psychologically damaged from the war, was not understood as a kind of neutral clinical thing. So in that sense, there was huge pushback. And and one sees that with the rise of Reaganism. How do we redefine the Vietnam vet away from this figure of the damaged, traumatized soldier? Because it was seen for what it was, which was a critique of the war. I mean, even among people who may be psychologists who were not explicit critics of the war, they knew the brutality of the war, the brutality of what the military was doing was harming these people. So from the get-go, the stakes for the military and the federal government were very clear, right? This was not just, and again, remember that this is happening at a time, not just when there's a growing veteran movement against war, but the military's falling apart. There's incredible heroin and drug use problems in Southeast Asia among U.S. military personnel. There's fragging, people killing their officers, right? I mean, the structure of command and order is also falling apart, which psychiatrists in the States sometimes are being read as as trauma, but you didn't have to read it as trauma. But it's, again, is that a political critique? Maybe, but it's certainly some kind of a critique. This isn't working, right? So um, it was not seen as neutral. It was not seen as this is something people suffer because it's, uh, I mean, by today, which I write about, the military and, you know, very much, and the administration, think about from Obama, right, forward, they understand PTSD as one of the casualties of war. There is no, it is, it is one of the costs of making war. It is built into the structure. It's built into an understanding of, of combat injuries and war injuries. 
it doesn't mean it's fully accepted, you know, as someone in the military admitting you have PTSD could end your career, blah, blah, blah. But nevertheless, it's not to say that soldiers and veterans suffer PTSD today is a, is understood as a kind of clinical statement. We know that. This is the problem. War will inevitably produce these kinds of casualties. Can we limit the amount of casualties? Can we treat them better? But it's not seen as a as a political statement at all. It's part of the costs, literally fiscal and human, of making war. Um, that was not the case then. Yeah. I will. Yeah, and you're right to point out with regards to the the process of depoliticization, it's not a kind of conspiracy of people just sat in a room saying, we're going to do this to this sort of psychiatric hero. You, you detail in the book a very complex process of the interaction of different social forces and different priorities of uh, political actors from various points across the political spectrum that contribute to PTSD uh, being depoliticized and having the political content removed from it as a diagnostic framework. And if I miss any apologies, but as I remember in the book, the, the sort of the, the, I guess the broader movements that you're describing can be summarized as a, a broad shift in psychiatric field, the, the medicalization that you're talking about, the um, marginalization of a sort of psychoanalytic framework. There's a feminist movement coalescing around the very real need to recognize the violence and trauma caused by rape, sexual violence, incest. And then there's also the law and order movement, the victims of crime movement. And so what's so fascinating about your book is you you can look at PTSD and it's almost, you can see all these different forces acting upon it. And it's almost a kind of indexical reflection of all these incredible shifts happening in American consciousness and American political life. So to boil all of that down <laughs> into a question, I suppose, could you maybe sort of talk through in your mind the the various different political currents that you pick out in the book and why you felt that those were the ones that you felt were key? I mean, you've already touched on the medicalization mm -hmm. of this psychiatric field, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. maybe we've already covered that, but perhaps the critique you have of uh, kind of feminism and I suppose specifically the way in which that very valuable work is co-opted. Maybe we could start there. Right. Absolutely. Um, I think it's interesting. So I think PTSD is both indexical of it and then becomes formative in ways, but right. Mm. So the feminist movement, the feminist movement is an obvious place to look for two reasons. One is because the historical literature that already says it's really that moment of Vietnam activism that, you know, it's a, the argument is the birth of victimhood, of understanding PTSD as victimhood, was the convergence of the feminist movement and the anti-war movement in the 70s. Because the anti-war movement, basically, the, the category of trauma and then rendering these veterans victims was a way to set aside the political conversation about the war. For or against the war in Vietnam, everybody could agree these people were suffering. But what I realized starting to look at it is the time frame's a bit off. The feminist movement becomes central to, a, to defining and redefining PTSD really in the 80s, not the 70s. They model their, I mean, the Vietnam anti-war movement and its psychiatric wing, right, this post-Vietnam syndrome, opens the door for them to be heard because they get PTSD into the DSM. 
right? So rape is mentioned in the DSM-3, but if you look through the archives, discussions of rape are not very extensive in the arguments that went on about how to define it. Concentration camps are fire, um, you know, these massive fires. But And rape is referred to as a relatively uncommon incident. Now, we know from all sorts of feminist theory, rape is not uncommon, but that was the assumption in the 70s. So in the 80s, what happens is you finally, right, you have this feminine, these feminist movements. I mean, it's really the 70s, but it begins to have much more influence in the 80s within the community, which is they need, they don't need the, uh, what did you do necessary the first right? They're not, they're not struggling with how to help their patients recognize their own responsibility and live with that responsibility and guilt. They're actually pushing against a medical community and a judiciary that assumes women are somehow guilty, right? What was, right? It was open season. Have you had sex? How many sexual partners have you had? What were you wearing? Why were you walking in the street late at night? And even when you look at the incest literature, I have to say very few things shock me in the world. When I started reading stuff published well into the 70s, where people were arguing there's this field called victimology, that you know, seven-year-old girls were somehow responsible for having been raped by their parent, by their father or uncle, because they must have seduced them. So the feminist movement is up against this both cultural common sense and judicial common sense, which is no. Children are innocent and women are innocent of this, right? In other words, you cannot hold women or girls, or and they were focused on women and girls, even though incest clearly we know is not just with girls, but yeah. now, but um, are not are not responsible. They really are victims, and you have to understand them as victims of this crime. It's 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 a crime of violence. It is not sexual in the sense of about seduction or participation. So they really push for that, and that really pushes for an under. They they use the model of. Um, definition of PTSD, and they actually write about, they see many parallels, but they then, so one of the earliest things talking about rape trauma syndrome, right? It, the, the question is having been exposed to an incident where you thought you were going to die. That's where you really get the fear of death. So that is a radical politics. The other thing to keep in mind before I move on is feminists. I mean, this was, you know, dominated by white feminists unequivocally with all the problems that had. But they knew, because this is born heavily of, I mean, there are the feminist theorists, but also psychiatrists and psychologists working in women's crisis centers, et cetera. They knew that the vast majority of rape, let alone incest, which is always, is committed by someone you know. This was not the stranger, right? The primary problem was not actually walking down the street. Okay, so that's one movement. But starting in the 60s, grows through the 70s, kind of tapers a little bit and then comes to its own with the rise of the Reagan administration is a conservative backlash against this is, I have to say, I know I'm taking a bit of a version. This was a surprise to me. I knew I was going to look at the feminists. I knew I was going to look at the, but I just ran into this victims of crime movement. Now, so it was called the victims of crime movement. It's tethered to the rise of a law and order discourse that starts in the 60s in response to the civil rights movement, right? Law and order becomes the way of talking about race without talking about race. We all know it's like the rise of the carceral state where increasingly, which really takes off in extraordinary form by the 1980s. 
So the Victims of Crime Movement essentially is a white backlash against what is perceived as the streets becoming much more dangerous. The streets signify the urban, the street signifies the black uh, predator in the streets, and the language becomes good citizens can no longer wander the streets without being at risk for being a victim of crime. The statistics, which people like Louis Vacan and all sorts of people have shown, statistically crime really was on the decline almost entirely from the 1960s to the 1980s until there was a moment of the crack epidemic was much later. And also that crime was always concentrated, right? It was located sociologically. You were it was not Right, this fantasy of the black predator effectively coming on into white neighborhoods, which was never said explicitly that that's what it was about, it's not true. That's not right. Most people who were victims of crime lived in the neighborhoods where crimes were committed, and therefore, given the segregation of American society, that's not where it works. So Reagan comes to power with a big law and order agenda. He, the victims of crime movement, now has someone huge support for this movement in the White House. They put a lot, they set up task forces, a task force on to study, I mean, on the victims of crime. And the general tenor of the whole thing is that starting in the 60s with the Warren Court, the Supreme Court, the judiciary, the judicial system leaned way too far in favor of the rights of criminals. So the Miranda law, where you have to be um, told of your rights when you're arrested. Bail was lenient right to a lawyer. There were a whole list of things. And so the rhetoric of this movement and of the federal task forces set up to study it was, we have to rebalance the judiciary in favor of the rights of victims who have been lost in this system that only seems to care about the criminal, who of course is really like, you know, seen as an ontological kind of being. These are the predators. So there are two times the citizens, right? The innocent, good citizen, the predator, we don't name them white and black, but effectively, of course, that's what it is. That's the subtext. And the task force on the victims of crime comes up with a report, and this is where you begin to see it. I mean, there isn't just one task force. There's state levels, there are community organizations, et cetera. And the report includes not just sort of suggestions for how to, quote, unquote, rebalance the judiciary, like victim statements hearsay evidence that can come in, you know, considering the risk to the victim if someone's released on bail, et cetera. But one of the things that gets included is recognizing the psychological damage of crime. And actually, I also just wanted to pull this. It says, the task force, this is the task force on victims of crime that the Reagan administration um, established, I think it was 1982, but it was definitely in the first couple of years with the first president. Thing. The task force believed the criminal justice system needed to attend to victims' mental health needs. To this end, police officers required training in administering psychological first aid. This is the kind of the birth of psychological first aid in the U.S. Feminist collectives had done the start in the 60s and the 70s, which becomes the model, but this now gets institutionalized in a much more formal sense, right? So they, as in police officers, had to be taught that victims, quote, may experience depression dependence, anger, a feeling of loss or control, guilt, uncontrollable fear, either alone or in combination. And the response by the police must be both appropriate and sensitive. So what one sees here now is a kind of expansion of the traumatizing effects of having been a victim of crime that begins to get built into police forces who have people who will now counsel victims of crime into training, 
and into federal task forces that then respond, you know, sometimes to natural disasters, but also at moments of crime. And one sees this post 9-11 as the classic, one of the first thing that happens in, in New York City, I was here at the time, is they mobilize all these mental health, right? That kind of psychiatric first aid was right up. Everybody was mobilized initially with the assumption that there would be many survivors of the attack. That became very clear that wasn't going to happen. But then people who lived in lower Manhattan or just lived in New York or the first responders, et cetera. And that as a federal institutional project goes back to this conservative law and order victims of crime. So in some sense, now you have this notion of PTSD that gets widened in a kind of public arena where the iconic figure isn't the veteran, the veteran's still there, but it's increasingly this victim figure, victim of rape, victim of incest, victim of, you know, homicide, obviously they're survivors, victim of a mugging. And then as time goes on, you know, victims of terrorism. And it's interesting because in France, you have a parallel movement, but it's terrorism that is the central thing in the 80s, whereas in the US, it's not, it's crime, including rape. But again, so you have a convergence between these feminists what they need, both diagnostically, they're more focused on the diagnostics as well than the victim surprise, but also institutionally, the judiciary, but with very different both motivations politically. And also, I think importantly, again, feminists were very clear that the vast majority of rape and sexual assault was committed by people you knew, people in your friend or intimate circles, whereas, of course, the victims of crime movement was a law and order movement that understood crime, including sexual assault, to be, in fact, that of the random stranger in the street, which is always racialized implicitly. Um, so they're not pulling in the same direction, but the some parts of the feminist movement and what they set up as first response and how they understood trauma was picked up by that movement. Eventually, there's a kind of break between the major feminist organizations and the kind of victims of crimes like survivors of homicide, et cetera. But it's largely over that the victims of crime movement and its various local organizations want the federal government and state governments involved. And these feminist groups do not. They want their local women's crisis center not to be taken over by the federal government. Yeah. And so to summarize, actually with your own words, that I've, I've got noted down here is, uh, uh, is that a consensus emerged that eliminates the possibility of a traumatized person being an active agent in the traumatic event. So in the instances that you're talking about that is utilized by a feminist movement, that totally makes sense. But then there are all these political consequences of that then being applied to veterans and soldiers. Right. I mean, it's complicated in the following. So absolutely. So by the time you get to the DSM revision in the 1980s and then the DSM-4, DSM-3R and then 4 in 1990, you completely eliminate the, the phrase of behavior necessary for survival. And what you get increasingly is it's an experience of, of life threat and of having been victimized. The one caveat that I do have to put in there is there certainly is a sense in American psychiatry that if you were abused as a child, you can become an abuser. Mm, okay. But it's actually not built weirdly into the definition of deep, of mm. the diagnostic, like the, the actual formal category the definition does not quite put that in. Right. And so so this then converges with the, the kind of conservative reconstruction of the war in Vietnam, which is we did not lose the war on the battlefield. The problem was the, the American domestics 
politics did not allow the military to do what it needed to do. Mm. It did not let them win the war. And so, and tethered to that becomes Vietnam veterans were never um, honored for their service because there was so much movement against the war. And they were portrayed as these crazed people who like the war wasn't an atrocity producing situation. It was not out of control. Atrocities were a rare event, not standard operating procedure. And and then what begins to happen is you begin to see seeping into these conversations, although it would be a complete mistake to say people treating veterans through the 80s and 90s on a clinical level still didn't recognize that people were struggling with guilt. But what seeps into the conversations is that veterans were traumatized by being spit on at home. They were traumatized by the American public who did not accept them. So that erases the role that was very central of veterans in being anti-war vets and actually sets up this distinction between the civilian, which in American society means someone who's never experienced war, people didn't go, and the vet or in the soldier as this binary where people were so poorly treated, they ended up not being valorized, not being honored and traumatized for many of them. So you have this complete rewriting of both the war and then an attempt to recuperate the figure of the veteran away from the image of Rambo or the deer hunter, where you have these crazed vets doing crazy things, right? Yeah, and I, I've heard this process described to me as the, the figure of the soldier being placed between the state and those that wish to criticize the state's decisions around military policy. And that's where the argument come, begins to emerge that they were traumatized by precisely being put in the middle. But the blame is not from the state. In that argument, the blame is that they were called baby killers, they were spat on, blah, blah, blah. And that, that homecoming was incredibly traumatized. So in some sense, you, you displace the killing fields of Vietnam entirely onto a kind of... And then that becomes a really important part of rewriting American or a kind of reconfiguration of American public discourse, which is support the troops. No, you know, even if you don't support the war, you have to support the troops, which really yeah. gains a kind of very public ground with the first Gulf War in 1990. Um, because the presumption is if you don't, they're going to be traumatized. Well, first of all, you have to have evidence. You have to have all sorts of evidence that I don't necessarily buy, which is, okay, so if you take, I mean, I said this once in a thing. Does that mean that the levels of PTSD are actually lower, let's say, in Israel, where everybody serves in the military and there's a broad support for militarization? The IDF claims them to be, but people who've done careful research are not sure that they are lower, right? I mean, it's just an assumption. There's no evidence for that assumption, right? Yeah. And I suppose... Just think about a structured conversation. Maybe for here, for kind of the final section of this conversation, we should think kind of more about our kind of contemporary moment and how, I suppose, where we are now in a few different ways. And and maybe a way to lead into that is that one of the consequences of this complex, long history that you're talking about is the response to the post 9-11 wars. And I suppose what feels like a real consolidation of American imperialism and a, and a sense of defeat for a kind of anti-war movement, there is not as wide or as strong an anti-war movement in response to the wars that take place after 9-11. And 
I, I, I think you're making the argument that, that is in, in large part due to these kind of historical contingencies. Is that a kind of fair summation of your argument or is that slightly reductive? Well, I, I, is it, I think there are very complicated reasons for why there's not an anti-war movement. So I, but I think, okay, I wouldn't say the cause, well, let me back up. I don't think the cause of there not being an anti-war movement is specifically this shift in an understanding of trauma or its idiom. I will mm. get to what I think that role is. I think there are a couple of things. I think the question of there not being an anti-war movement is complicated. It's a particular, it's a very different moment. I mean, the anti-war movement in Vietnam grows out of all these other radical political moments, movements at the time. The U.S., until perhaps the rise of Trump, hasn't had a significant progressive movement since the 1970s that was organized in, in public. And I mean, there have been demonstrations here and there, but as a progressive politics, it's kind of been hollowed out until very recently. And it's important, I think, really important to know that that rise of that anti-Trump progressive movement was never about the wars. You know, it was almost like it didn't notice that they were still, that the country was still at war, right? I think that the attack on New York City, not just that there was an attack. I mean, I think the Pentagon's more complicated, but that, that kind of iconic attack on the Twin Towers by these, I, you know, the in the era of the war in Vietnam, the progressive movement in the left had a quote-unquote enemy they could imagine identifying with. This was an anti-colonial movement. I think the fact that this was Islamic, quote-unquote Islamic terror, the fact liberals didn't know what to do with that, um, there is a sense of it being a clash of civilizations, even among liberals who may not want to go to war, but they're not sure on what grounds they're going to oppose the war. There's nobody on the ground they want to identify with. I think there are all sorts of things that go on that make the, the consolidation of a movement almost impossible. And, and some of it really is that. I mean, I think a lot of it really is that figure of this crazy fanatical religious figure, right? I mean, liberals are often, you know, diehard secularists. And how do we, I mean, the right isn't going to have the movement. Okay. But I do think that there are a couple legacies that are extremely strong. And one is that this complex ways, way in which the military as a profession, that whole thing of support the troops, right? It neutralizes the military. The military is a profession. There's a sense that people go into it for economic reasons. It's an economic draft. It's in reality much more complicated. It, I mean, it is an economic draft in a certain way, which is a kind of middle class. I mean, a lot of the base of the military is the base of the Trump vote, right? So it is racially not distributed more heavily on minority communities. It's often a middle and sinking middle class that goes in. But also one of the primary determinants of who joins the military today is coming from a family where someone went in the military. It was in the military or is the military. So I think there are all sorts of ways in which the military itself has sort of been reconstituted as this, inc this institution worth respecting. So you see that again at the rise of Trump, thank God there are generals around him. They're the adults in the room. They're the same generals, literally, who created the fiasco counterinsurgency policies in Afghanistan and Iraq. What does it mean they're adults in the room? So American society ha has a weird hagiography around the military, including among liberals. And in, I mean, in a, in a weird way, like, no, we don't like the military, but it's professional. No, we don't like the military, but it's an important, it's an important um then, you know, a means of social mobility. And that entire conversation 
is entirely about the U.S. It never takes into account, well, really, it's social mobility. But what if it means your social mobility depends on going out and killing somebody somewhere else? But it's it's just this totally internal conversation. Yeah. Um, and then I think the issue is, insofar as so much of the coverage becomes about the suffering soldier, I mean, there is a lot of extraordinary physical injuries, but also this very public and endless conversation about the traumatized veteran. The kind of place that you put your critique or sympathy becomes by, we can't do what was done during the era of Vietnam. We cannot, we have to take care of these soldiers. We have to empathize. We can't criticize. We weren't there. Um, and I think it has an extraordinary, so it's not the cause, but it's one way to silence and not just silence, but to refocus critique on back onto the American figure, right? Because if you really want to think about if you really so one of the most common tropes in the US today among veterans and other people is how dare you ask me did you kill someone now on the one hand i wouldn't go and ask somebody if they killed someone first of all i don't you know i've been there i've been on the other side of being shot at and bombed i don't want to know but is it always under every circum in any circumstance such an unreasonable question i mean i was in a i was in a in a thing at Columbia once where they were filming the the uh, documentary about the Vietnam War that was made by, what's his name, the very famous oh, American Ken, filmmaker. It was oh, um, Ken Burns That's and, one, and his is. partner. And they had Ken Burns, the woman who made the film with him, who I feel terrible, I can't remember her name. And um, there was a veteran who was at General Studies. At General Studies of Columbia has a, has a big Marine contingent or ex-Marine contingent. And he again tells yet another story about an undergraduate, another undergraduate at Columbia who asked him this question. And it was really funny. First of all, the whole audience laughs as this, <laughs> what an outrageous question. But what's interesting is what he said is, you don't understand what we do in the military. It's a profession. There are people who are engineers. Like, it was just another job. And I thought, really? Like, really? We can't talk about this, right? So all of that creates a kind of public conversation that in many contexts, in the name of not disrespecting the soldier and supporting the troops makes a lot of difficult political conversations almost impossible. And, it, and a lot of that is tethered around a kind of trauma, which I, I, I actually talk about at great length in the book. Trauma in this category often now, which is named moral injury, which in some ways goes back to post-Vietnam syndrome because there's a sense of being injured by moral transgression or perceived moral transgression, which is really key. It doesn't mean you did morally transgress, but but it does go back to conversation about guilt and responsibility, et cetera. But in those conversations, the emphasis nevertheless becomes on listening to the soldier, but not effectively not politicizing the conversation, allowing them to speak and to listen without judgment. And then the question is, well, what constitutes judgment? You know, there's there's you know some of the scenarios where people bring up as examples becomes, well, yeah, the war was the U.S. should never have gone into Iraq, and then someone's like, how dare? But that's not a criticism of the soldier; that's a criticism of the war. So it all the the waters get muddied, and we don't seem to be able to have the conversations that need to be had, which is really not about the U.S. soldier, but about, or at least not only about the U.S. soldier, but about the kind of damage done across the world by a war that is still ongoing right in special ops and right 
Yeah. And I, this might be one of the final things I ask you, but I guess to loop this background to the focus we had in the first section of this conversation about that moment of veterans, radical psychiatrists working together in these groups to develop a process of treatment and a diagnostic framework that includes a political critique. Is that what this kind of comes back to as a key thing to reclaim? And I guess by that, what I mean is far more veterans die by suicide than they do in combat. The numbers are sort of astonishing when you look at them. I really should have noted them down, but I, I forgot to. So no, they are astonishing, yeah. um, But I highly recommend people look up those numbers because they are incredible. Um, and, you know, and that's important. And to reclaim that moment during and after Vietnam, I suppose, is to repoliticize how we think of treatment. And in a way, do you think that offers us an opportunity to sidestep that process of silencing to say, actually, if you, if you, you know, if you care about proper treatment for people who have been traumatized by war, you need a political critique as part of your treatment. Does that make sense? I do think, I mean, that's what was so fascinating to me about that moment is even in it of the radical psychiatrists of the Vietnam period is whether it looks exactly the same, they really do show that there's a way to have both of those conversations mm. as in, and that they're necessarily linked. So let me say one word about suicide and I'll go on. Suicide rates are extraordinarily high. What is incredibly interesting is it's hard to correlate suicide rates directly with combat or in theater experience right okay but but still then it might say something about deep brutalization of being in the military i don't know mm. i i mean i don't think that's a simple people often say well it can't be that but well then what else is going on right yeah. um look i think there are a couple things i think you know as psychiatry has moved more and more and more in the direction of a biomedical model again i do not doubt that trauma can shift brain chemistry. But that doesn't mean it is reducible to brain chemistry. There's all sorts of stuff now on, you know, I was at these conferences where people are looking for whether you can find, like, how do you, hey, how do you know someone has it? Is there a blood test or something? Can they develop a test where they could literally figure out if you have PTSD? There's stuff looking for whether there really is a genetic, a genetics. And again, there may be elements of all of this, but it's not reducible to that. So I think we have to both go back to thinking about the mind and not just the brain. And that's one thing that people who are working on moral injury are doing at least. They're not, right? They're, they're gone, they're gone back to think about people having consciousness and conflict and guilt and grief they can't resolve, which I think is an important move, even though they're still containing it within this behaviorist clinical model. But I also think that, you know, there's also stuff of whether you can prophylactically guard people against trauma. I mean, I have enough faith in the human condition or, or something to think that this isn't a mechanical problem, right? But I also do think it's essential to, you can't treat someone properly if you don't take seriously the nature of the trauma. I just, you know, 12, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, but really you're going to take deep trauma from having been in combat and put people through 12 sessions of some kind of a behavioral therapy and think you're going to walk out. I mean, not necessarily heal, but at least resolve. I think it's a profound misunderstanding of what the stakes are and how one has that conversation. You have to talk about war and what war involves, right? Now, maybe you think it's an imperial war. Maybe you have a different policy. But you have to talk about war, right? You can't just talk about like almost um, actions as if 
war is not a social and political phenomenon. So yeah, I think if you really do care about treating veterans, there are all sorts of ways in which you have to reframe this conversation, right, outside of these narrow clinical ways, but there's huge amounts of money that would be involved. But also, I think that's not the only concern. As a citizen, as, as citizens of a country that has been at war for 20 years, one has responsibilities to people who are not just the soldiers, the American soldiers, right? One has, if one wants to talk about responsibility to the troops, Okay, but then one has to talk about what is one's obligation, what kinds of reparations might be owed to the countries that you have destroyed. One on an out-and-out lie, right? I mean, the U.S. has gone off the deep end about Russia invading Ukraine on a lie. I'm on the side. Russia invaded Ukraine on a lie, and that's a war crime. But, you know, Condoleezza Rice was literally on national public radio two weeks ago, and they were interviewing her. And she was talking about the dangers to the world order if you allow countries to just invade other countries because they can. The reporter didn't stop and say, seriously, can we actually talk about Iraq here, right? And and Afghanistan, right? Was that really, you had to destroy a whole country? There's all sorts of evidence coming out that the Taliban may have given up the Al-Qaeda leadership and that definitely they were willing to negotiate surrender if they got amnesty in November 2001. Instead, you take the country through 20 years of war and then you walk away, right? That conversation cannot be had if one doesn't think about the politics of the war. And part of that we'll be talking about trauma. And part of it is maybe we don't need to just be talking about the trauma of American troops. Maybe they're not the primary actors who they've suffered, but are they... primary people who have suffered this war in numerical? Absolutely not, right? And and the war is ongoing. It's almost like the fall of Kabul was the end of the war, right? So I think there are better ways to talk about trauma, so you don't have to have an either or. But I also think it's just the trauma of U.S. troops cannot be the primary focus of conversation, and it often feels like it is. Um, trauma or other forms of injury, right? That is the that is the focus. So now it's the burn pits. I agree, burn pits. People are suffering. I mean, people are being made ill. But you know, what about all the people in Iraq and Afghanistan? They've been living near these burn pits for a decade. None. There is not a political conversation in the U.S. of any import or any reach that goes outside of a kind of nationalist imaginary of obligation. And responsibility, and that's a serious problem. And some of that is because of uh, some of that has been mediated by this discussion of of trauma among American troops, and it has been in an important way been mediated. Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Nadia for such an enjoyable conversation. Tune in next week when I'll be speaking to Natasha Leonard about the rise of anti-abortion politics and the use of legislation to attack the very wide and popular support for access to abortion in the States.